Welcome back to Are You For Real with Sarah Frick. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Amanda Mast, who I got to meet at um, our my son, her daughter's class party. And I've shared in class before that um, about this party because, and I just told Amanda this as well, I wasn't worried about the 25 kids. I was more nervous about talking to the moms. And I think as much as I can remember, I, Amanda was sitting there and I remember your daughter was there and I told you I had lunch with your daughter when I went to school and she was so charismatic and like asked so many questions. It was just a, just full of light. And um, yeah, I think you said, I'm so glad we've had a lot of transition. We had to move school districts, I believe. And, you know, she lost her father recently. And then we started talking about your story. And um, as those of you that listen to Are You Free A Lot know that that's what this podcast is all about, is that we break down barriers and stigmas as we share our stories. And um, Amanda agreed to come on the podcast. Um, so I'd love for you to introduce yourself, just give us a little bit of background, and we'll just kind of shoot it from there. Okay. Um, so I'm Amanda. Um, so I am a I'm in recovery from an opiate um, problem. So basically, my story started. Um, gosh, I was 19 when I got pregnant with my oldest, Kinsley. Uh, I had a C-section at 20. It was very like traumatic. A lot of drama. They gave me an epidural too early, um, and then when I, I pushed for like 23 hours, oh, 23 hours and nothing. And then finally they came back in and they gave me another dose of um, the epidural because I had had the epidural for 24 hours and couldn't move that whole time. Um, I didn't push to the last hour. And then it had, by the time I started pushing, the epidural had wore off. So I had an epidural for all this time with no movement of baby coming. Then pushed for an hour and a half, full pain. Um, and then they were like, we're going to have to do a C-section because um, I couldn't dilate, yada, yada. Um, so when they took me, they pulled me up in the bed, like under my shoulders and lifted me up. Um, and that made the epidural line go up instead of down. Mm. So it numbed me all, waist mm. up. So I couldn't breathe. It like numbed my my, my lungs. Like oh it, my it numbed gosh. me. So I they thought I was having a panic attack, but I was not, obviously. Um so long story short, to speed through, um, I passed out. I remember sirens going off and them yelling codes like, mom and baby, you're dying. Um, next thing I know, I'm waking up in the ER and they're cutting me open and I feel it because they had to reverse the epidural so I wouldn't die. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was just, you know, so then she was born um, and I came to again and they were pulling the stitch and I could feel it and mm. I pat, you know, your body can only take so much. Yeah. Um, so... My oldest, because of all that, did not breathe for eight minutes mm. on her own. Oh so she was like blue, gosh. purple, like had to be in like an astronaut, like oxygen thing. So it was a lot of trauma around that, obviously. Um, and there's more to that, but just the point is a lot of trauma. So obviously C-section pain medicine. I had never had any problems with pain medicine before. So like they're really in the hospital, there weren't any problems so we get home, and I was taking them like I was supposed to. Um, I Will took you them, tell yeah. the, our listeners, just for people that don't know, I know because I've had a C-section too, what mm -hmm. you were prescribed? Yeah, so um, my first prescription was for oxycodone, um, 10 milligrams. Then um, as it progressed, the second prescription was for Percocet 7.5s, which is just oxycodone with acetaminophen, so Tylenol, mixed. 
Um, and obviously like 2.5 milligrams less. Oxycodone is full oxycodone. There is no anti-inflammatory or any NSAID or anything with that. So that was like when I needed it. Uh, but unfortunately I got like about four weeks after my C-section, I realized that I was like not really needing them anymore. So I quit taking them. Um, and then I felt like crap, like for like three days. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe I was getting sick. I didn't put, I'd never been an addict. I'd never had a problem. I didn't even, honestly, I was 20. I didn't even know anybody who like had a drug addiction yet. You know, like I didn't know what that looked like. Mm -hmm. So I felt like crap for a few days and then it was raining and I walked out on our porch with Kinsley, who was a month old and it was slick and I slipped. It was in Crocs and I slipped and I did this like kung fu taekwondo throw up catch down yeah. whatever move mom super yeah. mom move <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know um so that i you know so i could like kind of throw up and catch her and she wouldn't get hurt or hit the ground but i did mm-hmm. and it tore some of my incision on my c-section incision and so i went and got checked and it was bad enough that it needed to be like sutured again like they had to cut more and then mm. suture it and anyway so that led to more pain medicine um and i believe that time it was Percocet 7.5s again, if I'm thinking, if I remember correctly. Um, And so when that happened, though, I realized that when I took that first pill, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like crap anymore. And I was like, that's weird, you know. But again, I didn't know much about. So over over the next, like, couple of years, it kind of grew. Um, I also had had, like, a four-wheeling accident, um, like, uh, six months to eight months after I had her, um, Kinsley, and... I like when I, I went over the handlebars. So basically there was a bunch of mud. I went for it on the four wheeler and it was a ditch and I didn't know it was a ditch. <laughs> it was a ditch. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, it was a ditch. So I went like all the way over the front of the handlebars. And so like the handlebars, you know, caught my thighs, but I still, my whole body went over. So <sighs> I had bruises and, um, I like the way that I fell, my head like went back into the side. And so I found out then that I had a, um, two bulge discs and a herniated disc eventually, and then a herniated disc in my back. Um, so a lot, so, you know, so then headaches started, so then pain medicine continued. Um, so in 2013, um, so at this point, so I met my, my late husband, Kenny, mm-hmm. when I was 15 in high school. And so fast forward to when we get pregnant with Kinsley and all this is happening, um, we decided we wanted, you know, her to have a sister within a certain age, you know, like three or four years. So we got pregnant again and I had Braylee, um, so my eight-year-old now. And at that point, my, I guess my, my usage was at the point where I could take pills and then I could pull myself I'd take like tramadol or something that like wasn't a narcotic but it like made if you took enough of it it made you kind of feel okay um and so it balanced it out so that I could pull myself off of the opiates like the pain medicine itself so Lortab, Norco, Hydrocodone. Where did you get all of this stuff during the time from all of your accidents? Yeah, so it started from, like, prescribed, and at that point, it was mostly prescribed because of my neck injury. I had a neurologist that was prescribing, Um, so I also, and this is actually, I'm glad you asked that because this is kind of a big piece. When I had Kinsley in 2010, right when, like, that addiction and all, I guess, kind of started, some of my um, family on my in-laws' side, um, I got a lot 
of pain medicine and they benefited from my husband and I both being addicted. Mm. So they would feed it to us. Um, it made us a deal, you know, like they got like 120, um, Lortab tens, 10 milligrams. And we would go to the pharmacy and pay 60 bucks for the whole 120 and then should give us 60 of them. So while I was not using and I was pregnant with Kinsley, his family had already, my husband, Kenny's family, had already started getting him to use. For what reason? To control. Mm. If, you're, if you're addicted to something, then you're going to do anything that, that person wants you to do if you know you're guaranteed to get those drugs. Right. Um, and then that person saw that. Um, and so it built. So then when I started taking them, they took advantage of that. And that's how the addiction grew so much. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was from my in-law side. And then the other part was from pre being prescribed until about 2013 after I had Braley. I remember like having the like, oh crap mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. because I was so excited to, like, see that, you know, see Braley. Like, I mean, I was so excited to, like, see my mm -hmm. little baby, yeah. right? But I was also so freaking excited that I got a Demerol shot, mm -hmm. which is, like, you know, a lot of it's a very strong, like, pain medication. Um, and it's IV. So the rush that you get, you know, when you get a shot like that is, like, whoo, yeah. you know, like, the euphoria. And you had been sober and, while you were pregnant. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not of course. A lot of people aren't able to. I Yes, I was. Yeah. I was sober when I was pregnant. Um, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I quit taking anything. Um, and, again, that's like I was saying, my addiction was kind of like I could pull myself out of it. Right. And I'd always go back to it. Right. So, like, that was kind of, like, the very start. Do you feel like that's a way – people can rationalize it too. Like, I think you and I were kind of having this conversation before, like someone calling, like whatever, a casual user or mm -hmm. like, oh, I can stop. But, because I feel like just in the work that I do, I work with a lot of younger people and I hear these things and I'm like, that seems like kind of like, you got risky, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat. Um, you don't, we don't it, want you to. It absolutely is the beginning stages and, if somebody thinks that they can control an addiction or a beginning of an addiction, you cannot. Addiction will take your soul, and you won't even realize it took your soul until you're so deep into it that you've got to fight harder than you can survive. I mean, most people don't survive this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, this is um, and I'm not, like, obviously cancer is a health thing, but... Addiction is cancerous mm -hmm. in the fact that it it can it can turn terminal and chronic and not go away quickly, and it's very it's a dangerous thing. Obviously, having actual cancer is far worse, and you know I'm not trying to like minimize that whatsoever. Um, I'm just saying it in the fact that a lot of people don't realize how serious mm -hmm. addiction is. People sometimes think that it's very easy to pull yourself out of that. Well, if you don't want to be an addict, then just don't. Right. If you don't want to do it, then just don't take the pills. Don't shoot the pills. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't drink. Don't whatever. Right. That's super easy to say with your mouth, but it's very hard to do with your actions mm -hmm. when you're already in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yes, I a hundred to answer your question. I a hundred percent believe I was rationalizing what I was doing. I should have probably not should have probably I should have got help then, um, and but I didn't. So after I had Braley, that's when instead of taking like thirty milligrams 
you know, at a time at that point, after I had Braley, it went to probably like 60 Mm -hmm. milligrams multiple times a day. And then I want to say like 2015, so Braley was about two, um, we started like meeting more people that were in that, you know, that mindset that we're using, that we're doing drugs. And that was not good, obviously, for anybody. Um, my husband started doing ironworking, and it was, and he started ironworking before that, um, before Braley, and that was when his addiction really hit the roof. He started doing heroin mm-hmm. then and shooting heroin at that time. So we were in a kind of rocky when we had Braley. Um, Can I stop you? Just keep yeah. asking more questions. Of course. Um, so because I've heard this and I haven't ever had the opportunity to speak to someone like this, it, do a lot of people go from pills to heroin because it's easier or it's cheaper or it's more effective? Like how does that transition? Um, because yeah. j- just to, sorry to interrupt you again, but like I've had <laughs> C-sections, I've had surgery to fix my C-sections and it's the drugs are thrown at you. And I remember the last surgery I had um, a few, maybe like six months ago this was, and I remember talking to Lindsay about it. I think I, I, they gave me Oxy and I was to pull, I, I took them. And the day I was like, I'm, I don't have the pain anymore. I was a fucking wreck. I could not stop crying. I felt so bad for three days. And I was talking to a friend of mine who actually has been in treatment before for pills. And she said, that's why people keep taking them. And that was like, not like just taking what they told me to take. And I'm not blaming anyone. I understand there's a reason right. that we this medication is there, but it seems like a very slippery, scary slope. It and especially is. you put add a new baby into the mix <laughs> when you're already losing your damn mind. Right. Yeah. And so. absolutely. Um, so it takes three days to um, take pain medicine prescribed, um, any kind of opiate prescribed, three days, and you are chemically dependent on that drug, on that pill, on that medication, um, three days. And normally you've got a week, two weeks, four to six weeks, right? So absolutely, that was absolutely your very small withdrawal. And if you would have kept going, it would have gone, you would have gone straight to hell very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank God that you didn't. I mean, literally, you know, I thank God that you did not um, because I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, But yeah, definitely, I would say... I would say probably 75% of the people I, my lived experience, what I personally know, um, did start with pain pills, pain killers, um, oxy, loratab, hydrocodone, um, Percocet, you know, Dilaudid, morphine, any of those. Um, they definitely started with that. And then one, it gets very, it's very, pills are, pills are very expensive. So you're talking about like an oxy, a 10 milligram oxycodone is some people like the cheap, cheap would be like $7 a pill, mm-hmm. you know, normal would be like 10 bucks a pill, a mm. dollar a milligram. So if you have to take 60 milligrams to get high, then you're, yeah. That's 60 bucks. And that's one time getting high. Yeah. In four to six hours, if you're lucky, four to six hours, you need it again. So it it, it only builds, your tolerance builds as you use, you your body gets used to it. So you're having to use more and more. That's why it gets to, to such a high you know rate. And heroin is very, very, a lot, a lot, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more potent it's more it's stronger so absolutely it normally goes pills to the heroin 
Um, some people do, though. They they will be at a party and they'll just, you know, snort heroin or use, you know, use dope, like use heroin, like just for recreational, social, having fun, peer pressure, whatever. Um, and then they love the feeling and they keep going. Got it. So it really depends, I guess. But I would say 75% of the people I know, it definitely was like, a, a surgery, a surgery, or whether that be dental, a lot of like um, sports, kids in high school, young mm-hmm. young adults in high school, ACL, you know, meniscus tears, like things like that, rotator cuff surgery, those kind of things, back injuries, mm-hmm. you know, um, TBI, like tra- traumatic brain injury kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, concussions, all of that um, starts, you know, any kind of dental, like wisdom teeth, everybody, you know, about 18 gets normally, I guess, I guess. But um, yeah, so definitely it starts there, I would say. Um, and to build from from that too. So when I, after I had Braley, when in like 2015, I was at like 60 milligrams or so taking at a time. Um, and my husband, Kenny, was like 120. You know, he was pretty much double me. But he was also doing heroin. Mm-hmm. And he was IV using, unfortunately. He was a um, an insulin-dependent diabetic. Okay. So he had the needles. And um, unfortunately, that, that got started and, and kept going. And he had snorted them before that. Um, and I would kick him out for snorting. I'd find like a little straw and I'd kick him out the house. Um, even though I was orally taking them, right. it was, you know, it was different. Um, and it was different, but fast forward a little bit through uh, about six months later, our neighbor at the time, Randy, had a huge connect for Oxy30s. If, if I had to pinpoint a time in my life that my addiction really, um, like, you put, like, you put it to pavement was that that point mm-hmm. because I we had never done oxy 30s like we might have done like a 10 milligram or a 15 or something but getting the oxy 30s and taking that was such a different like so it was, that's different than taking even if you take 60 milligrams of 10s the 30 is just more powerful no it's not I guess no not more powerful just um taking less okay you know just yep. like the fact that like you can take just pop two it. of those itty bitty pills yep. instead of taking six and you know it's easier just to take those two and unfortunately um and then you know you see when you're going to get one itty bitty pill it feels like you have nothing so you're going to want like three or four mm. you know because you're used to taking six little itty bitty pills now you got like two and it's like uh no sir yeah i need some more yeah however it also is a pay increase you know a charge increase so you're talking about an oxy thirty is thirty dollars uh-huh. for one, so twenty five if you're lucky. Um, hint, hint, lucky, right. but not really lucky, but you know, drug drug addiction, lucky. And so that really is when I think things started to progress quickly. So at that, so from that last five and a half years, it really like kind of for me, my husband it kind of was like off to the races because of iron working and the drinking and cocaine and heroin and pills and all the drugs and iron, I'm not saying every iron worker, but in a union and iron working, there's a lot of drugs there. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, so he was always, like I said, he was already like twice as bad as I was every step of the way. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of problems through our marriage because of drugs, um, and him nodding off and falling asleep and getting arrested for dumb things and, 
you know, just craziness, being mm-hmm. around people I hated, bad and, you know, stuff like that. And so <clears throat> our neighbor pretty much only had like, I think four pills, four oxy thirties left. He was waiting for it to re up for somebody coming over to like re up and get more drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he didn't know when they were come. So Kenny had got his Randy, his wife had done theirs. There was one left. They save it for me. Randy put it in a straw and like bit it and like was gave it to me like I was going to snort it. I had never snorted it before. And I was like, I don't snort things. And then he was like, well, this is all I got. So I'm like, well, this is all I got. So I snorted it mm-hmm. and that, and I was done for, I yeah. never, um, cause it, cause it, the rush was, oh yeah, it was immediate instead of taking, um, instead of taking pills and waiting like 30 minutes for them to kick in yep. when I snorted it, it was like, bam, yep. we're there. And I was like, Oh, this is so bad. And I never went back. That's my whole, my whole addiction after that time. Um, I was, I was in for, I was done. Um, so in 2016, I actually had weight loss surgery, um, through having kids, I gained like a hundred pounds mm-hmm. and I was like 274 pounds when I had weight loss surgery, July, actually July 27th of 16. My husband was in jail, um, at the time for like six months. And after that weight loss surgery, it was a very bad situation because I was so sick, mm. but I was also a drug addict already. They'd, I was very, I was already a drug addict, but didn't know it. So I got so much, so much, so much drugs and just so many pills mm-hmm. after that that it went from like if ten is the worst. Before that, I was maybe five. It took me to a seven real quick, right? Um, because I went through all the actual, you know, oral taking pills, and then I was like, oh, I can't take it. It makes me sick. So they'd give me a huge bottle of like liquid oxys, and I was like, oh lord. And then I'd go through that. So it just grew. Um, and so fast forward again, I got another connect, and this is like the 2017, and. I ended up having plastic surgery because, like, they had messed up my C-section mm-hmm. and they had left gauze in my stomach. Oh, my God. Yeah, like a whole big thing of gauze, like a whole sliver of sleeve, whatever. And so they, it had calcified and got hard in my stomach because, you know, you know, your body goes to, like, yeah. cover it so Protect it won't it, hurt yeah. you. And so they had to cut it out. So it put, like, a line up my stomach. So they went after I lost 100 pounds. Um, from weight loss surgery within a year. Wow, congrats. Uh, thank you. I went and got, you know, my stomach part fixed and like kind of like a kind of like a tummy tuck with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I had a lot of friends at that point with with pills. And they all, the way that people on drugs show love is giving people drugs. Mm-hmm. That's literally the way that a drug addict or a drug dealer shows love. Right. That's the way friends that are addicts show love is giving drugs. That's just it. Um, It's twisted, but that's what it is. And when you're an addict and someone's giving you that, you feel love. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. It's weird, but in the moment, you're like, this MFR really loves me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, like, seriously. And so... I got a lot of pills from that, from people just feeling bad because I was in so much pain. Um, and so one of the <clears throat> connects that I had, had a, his connect had a ton of oxy thirties, like buried in his yard type Jeez. things. Weird. Yeah. And so <clears throat> he was building a house on the land out in like Hugey and he needed a bunch of like stuff from Lowe's Home Depot, you know, to do that. And so I'm kind of leaving out a big part that through the addiction and having to pay for it, I was, I got a lot of charges, you know, legal charges on the way. Um, 
As of right now, I have five shopliftings and a petty larceny. This episode is brought to you by Hamden Clothing. I love helping people feel empowered, engaged, and uplifted in their bodies during a class. But I also love when the empowerment reaches beyond just a 45 or 60 minute workout, especially when what I wear amplifies the way I feel in my body. We all deserve to feel good in what we wear. And Hamden Clothing has been helping women feel empowered through clothing for over 15 years. With one of the most uniquely curated mix of luxury and designer brands, Hamden stylists and personal shoppers bring the runway to your doorstep. Stop by the amazing Hamden storefront on King Street in downtown Charleston, or shop hundreds of brands like Marnie, Ghani, Golden Goose, Isabel Morant, and more at HamdenClothing.com. That's Hamden, H-A-M-P-D-E-N, clothing.com, where you can even try before you buy with their new Try Now program. Every single item that's in the store is available online and hand-picked by one of my very best friends, Stacey Smallwood, who is just a total badass. Have questions about a specific item? Go to www.hamdenclothing.com. Use the live chat feature in the bottom right-hand corner and a personal shopper will help you get started right away. Hamden is one of my favorite stores and I can't wait for you to try it and feel empowered in a new outfit. And so that was that was kind of building as you yes. got it. So that kind of slowly, I think I got arrested the first time was in 2015, I think was my first arrest. And then four in 2017. Mm. And then one in 2018, um, which was, I'll get to like, kind of like why it stopped there. Um, Were you working at the time too? Sometimes, so I'd had the weight loss surgery and then the plastic surgery, and I had some infections. Like they gave they gave me all kind of like weird, like I had drains on the side. Yeah. They took them out too early, so I had all kind of weird things happening. Um, and they were just doing things wrong, like they you know that I found out later they shouldn't take the drain out so quick and mm-hmm. things. Um, plus, I really wasn't taking very good care of myself. I wasn't taking the antibiotics. I just wanted the pills, you yeah, know, yeah, the drugs, the good shit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. <clears throat> When all these pills came in and then I met, you know, I have my dealer and he, he has his dealer that needs all this. So I started a lot of those charges, um, are from like at Christmas time, I would steal flat screens from Walmart or Target, Barbie dream houses, trampolines, sound systems, whatever. You would um, literally just put them in your cart and walk out. Yes. Ballsy. Were you scared? Not a bit. I knew where I was going and what I was getting. And as long as I got to the dope man's house, I was good. And so that's when they would, like, that's how you got busted, though, doing that yeah, kind of well, stuff. Yeah, so mostly people snitched on me. They got mad I wouldn't share my pills, and then they tattletailed. Like, called the cops? So, yeah. Oh so then God. they, yeah, okay. snitchy bitches. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> Those bitches. <laughs> you know, snitchy bitches. But um, they, I guess, yeah. So, which, you know, it is... It is what it is. But yeah, so 2017 is really when my addiction was at its worst. Um, so again, through this, to add another piece, um, DSS had in, has investigated me six times. Mm-hmm. And each time was for like a year. Um, somebody would call and say, I fed my kids donuts. Or I was drug dealing out the car, which I never did. Um, I did do some things that I regret. Um, so when it snowed, January 2018 Mm -hmm. when we all got snowed in so I was still using and that was that like my one of my probably September of 2017 to February 1st or so of 2018 was probably like that six month period or so was like my my worst Mm -hmm. I mean like rock 
bottom, yeah. like rock, rock bottom. My husband and I were not getting along. We were fighting. He was using methamphetamine, heroin with fentanyl in it. He was mm. using pills if I had it, taking Ambien to sleep, Xanax if he could get it, and he'd black out and go to jail because he'd steal the neighbor's stuff and forget he even did it. Um, I mean, just crazy, smoking weed, drinking, I mean, everything. Yeah. So, and all I did was take pills, not to mean like I wasn't doing anything, but the only drug I was doing was painkiller, pain pills. And he was doing all this array. So we'd fight because I'm like, why do I have to share my pills with you when you're doing all these other drugs, you know? But anyway, so the worst part was that six months and I was going into Lowe's and stealing like the huge (laughs) bags of Bermuda grass seed that's like 60 bucks a bag. I was filling it up like filling the buggy up to where I could barely move it. I could barely steer it, you know, and I would just rock, walk right out home. Depot. I mean, I know that's wrong, but like you got balls. (laughs) Brass ones. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's what everybody, if somebody was with me, they'd be like, you're just going to walk out. I'm like, get away from me. You know, if you look sketchy, I look sketchy. So get sketched over there. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, so that happened. That was, like, for six months, that's what I did. The huge, like, wire that's, like, $200 Mm -hmm. for the big wires, electrical wire, I stole, like, probably 50, 50. Would you go to different lows, though? Yeah, so I'd bounce back and forth, depending. Um, But for the most part, you know, I'd try to stay closer. But, but yeah, I would jump, like, here or there, home, you know, Home Depot lows. But... It was, it was really to a point where, like, when I was driving to go steal, I, I, I was so, I was at such a rock bottom that I've never hated someone so much as I have at that point, that last six months when I would look at myself. Mm. Like, I just disgusted myself, and... I say this on like every podcast and live that I do. Um, I remember like, like I said, that last six months, um, the worst six months that I was driving to Walmart in Somerville from Mount Pleasant and going to steal stuff so we could get pills. And I knew what I was going to get because I had somebody, because I would, I'd steal stuff and then put it like online and sell it. So then some people would ask like, do you still have it? And then I'd be like, oh shoot, no, but I'll go get another one, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, And they didn't know. They didn't know they were buying from a thief, you know. Um, So, but I was driving, and I remember just crying. Like, I, this is not how I was raised. Because I had a very good, like, my mom is a retired nurse. My dad's a retired cop. Like, I was raised in a very good Christian, um, you know, middle class. Like, we, you know, we weren't rich, but we definitely weren't poor. I mean, I was very well taken care of. I had family around me. We went to church. Um, I mean, you know, I wasn't like not loved as a child. Like I I had a very, what you would say, a very good upbringing. Um, and my parents are amazing. I mean, I'm very blessed with the parents I have. So it definitely went sideways on them, you know, and I was embarrassing. I was crying because I was embarrassing my dad. He was a cop at the time, um, on duty. And so I was ruining his name and everybody knew I was his daughter. It's our, where we live. Um, my mom was worried about me, you know, so I was leaving my kids to go get high. And so where I was going with that winter storm was that I was using, that was 
part of my worst part, uh, my worst part of my addiction. Um, so that was my rock bottom time. And I, when the, when the snow had come, I went and basically my brother-in-law was in jail. My ex-brother-in-law was in jail and he had a money card and I was helping him hold it to save money up. So I went and stole 150 bucks off his money card while he was in prison. Um, and, I went to the gas station and took it out, and then I drove in snow that I'd never driven in. I don't mm-hmm. never I don't drive in snow. We're in right. South Carolina, right, right, you know? right. Um, and I've been born and raised here, so I don't know what I'm doing in snow. And I had Braylee, my how old she was, probably like three and a half, four mm-hmm. at the time, and I could not see the road. I mean, it was the most dangerous thing ever. I mean, yeah. it was so freaking dangerous. We could have froze to death, or we could have got stuck. Who the hell knows? Out there, so far, you lose signal, you lose service. I mean, I could not, like, to this day, it still is one of the things that, like, really brings me to my knees because it was so dangerous, and I did it without even thinking. And, I mean, I knew the drug dealer guy, the people I was getting pills from. I knew them. We were friends, you know, um, on top of, like, them having the connect. But still, it was snowing. I couldn't see the road. It was a long drive, you know. So it put her at a lot of danger. And so um, DSS got involved again for the sixth time. Um, January of 2018. And at this point, like I said, I'm at my rock bottom. So when they came back and my husband was using, so he was so bad off and I was so bad off and I just didn't know what to do. And I didn't know how to get help or what help was. I heard bad things about everywhere. You look up like treatment centers and there's like freaking 50 of them. Right. And then you got to call every single one. And so overwhelming. Oh, it's, it's like, it's insane. You know, do they have a bed? Um, you know, do they take, do, can kids come with you? How long are you without your phone? Um, do they take insurance? Right. You know, can you smoke? Can you, whatever? I mean, there's all these different, not that some of those things should really matter if you really want help, but insurance is a big, is the hugest um, part of this mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't have insurance in that situation. And you're talking about 15 grand yeah. for a month That's in a, a treatment lot. facility. Nobody has that if you're in active addiction right. and then their families, you're, that it leans on them. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the ones that are low cost or free are like really religious places, which is pushed down your throat to where you just want to run. Um, and, you know, a lot of things with addiction is mental health. So, you know, the DSM-5 came out and they labeled addiction as a mental health like disease, Mm -hmm. a disorder. So it's now in the DSM-5. So it is a disease. It has been labeled in the DSM-5 as a disease. And so a lot of times if you go to, if you see a lot of people go to treatment and then they come out and they end up relapsing, you, it's very hard to be successful if you have an addiction and you fix the addiction or, or treat the addiction if you're not doing anything with your mental health situation or disease or illness, you're not going to most likely be successful. Mm-hmm. Dual diagnosis is the best kind of wraparound care is the best kind of treatment facility to go to or to be um, experiencing because you need the mental health aspect and the addiction aspect of it. There's always going to be an underlining reason why somebody is using their life is crap they lost their kids a child died a family member close to them died um embarrassment for the choices they made like you know there's always something depression anxiety um you know whatever you know and so dss got involved 
And I, like I said, was just at my like breaking point where I didn't know what to do, where to go. Like I said, so many treatment things. I heard terrible things about the methadone clinic. I heard terrible, you know, I didn't think I, I had tried to do to get off of the pills on my own. And at that point, the withdrawals were so bad that I thought I was dying. Mm. Um, and not to go into like too much about it, but like mm-hmm. just from, like I said, my experience, like I just felt like weepy and terrible. Like you felt like that's like soup being super sick. Right. And yeah. So normally how my withdrawals would start was that I'd get a really bad headache, like the back of my head. And then my neck would like feel tensed up. I'd start feeling like my body just almost like the flu, like that achy mm-hmm. feeling. Um, restless leg is probably the worst. Like it's like a you know a trillion freaking ants crawling in Ugh. each leg, up and down, just like jittery ants. Um, and that would just would drive you nuts. And when you're withdrawing, restless leg is a thing for people who aren't withdrawing. That's like a condition. Um, but you get it in your legs, your arms, like you feel like your neck, your head, your whole body is a restless leg. Yeah. Um, you could be throwing up diarrhea for sure. Mm -hmm. And so to quickly get into like kind of the, how this works with addiction, you have opioid receptors in like your brain, your spine and your GI tract. So those are pretty much the things that go into overload if you have too much or too little. So... After a while, you know, your brain makes um, serotonin and dopamine, like your levels, your brain creates those. And so when you're using for a long time, the drugs create the dopamine serotonin. So your brain is like, whoa, 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 we have way too freaking much, you know, serotonin, dopamine, we need to like, stop producing so over time your brain completely shuts down its production of serotonin and dopamine now those are your feel good your your mood stabilizing your how you feel your feel good type you know thing chemical whatever in your head you know those are the things that you need um to feel like a normal person you know um to be able to sustain life is you need those So when someone quits taking drugs all of a sudden, that means that no dopamine or serotonin is being put into your body from drugs, and now your brain has shut down production of them too because there was too much. Mm -hmm. So you have no dopamine. Your serotonin and dopamine levels are at an all-time low, if if at zero, right? So that's why a lot of people have that. I have to, I have to. They don't have a choice. That's why a lot of the mental thinking is not accurate you know right why so much craziness happens um with that you've got your brain which is what makes you think your you know gi tract controls your stomach and you know you going to the bathroom and the diarrhea type stuff the vomiting right your spine has to do with you know how you move your achiness so all those things are opioid receptors so all of those things go bad when you quit drugs so you're getting hit from every end. So yeah. emotions, screwed. Body, screwed. You know, stomach, screwed. Like, everything. So the only thing you know to do is, is you know, rob the president. Right, or right. The, or the CVS or whatever. I've never done that. But um, just, to, just to put that <laughs> Not out the there. president. I have, I have, or, or CVS. <laughs> or CVS. Or CVS. Um, I've thought about it, though. I had a plan <laughs> quite a few times. Um, luckily, I did not jump on that. But... You know, so that's why it's important for me to say that a lot of these choices that people are like, well, why would you? Why would you? Why don't you just stop? Why don't this? They can't. Yeah. Like, there's no other way to say it, but they 
physically, mentally, and emotionally cannot. Yep. They are not able to. There is nothing in them that can do that with such ease. Yep. You know? And yes, the second day especially, your withdrawals are going to make you feel so bad that I know people who were who almost committed suicide because they felt so bad. Yeah. You know, you will do anything and everything to not feel that sick. So you make decisions. Um, now, I am a huge MAT, so medicated assisted treatment um, advocate. So to go into kind of the positive now, um, February 1st of 2018, I had hit my rock bottom, um, and I started at the methadone clinic. Besides what everybody else, you know, despite what everybody had said about how terrible and junkified and people shooting dope outside the doors and all the craziness, I was like, there was no bed for inpatient or outpatient that I could find. Mm-hmm. Um I, I was, if I had, they had me at the point where I had so many charges so close together for the same type of crimes that if I had one more, they were going to hit me with enhancements. And in South Carolina, what they told me was that an, every enhancement is 90 days, like in jail, no matter what, there's right. no bonding. Well, you're thinking for one, I'm a drug addict. So if you lock me up for 90 days, I might die is how I feel, you right, know? Right, And I definitely don't want to withdraw in freaking jail, right, you know? Right. I've been to jail many times, and that's not where I want to be, especially withdrawing. So I knew I had to do something. My parents were at their wits end. They were worried. I was out of money. I was in debt a shit ton. My husband and I were like, if you know what I mean? Like, we, like, I couldn't stand him. He couldn't stand me. Right. The love was barely even there because we were, we despised each other so much because of u- drug use and choices and things. Um, so I started at the methadone clinic on February 1st of 18, 2018. And when I tell you that my life changed that day, it changed that day. I, they start you off with 30 milligrams, which, probably sounds like a lot but it's not in that in the methadone you know Mm -hmm. aspect it's not a lot um it's pretty low but I remember I was I cleaned the dishes that day Mm. and that doesn't sound like a big deal I should have cleaned the dishes right but that's not normal for somebody with addiction you know you have to be high as a freaking kite in the sky right you know to to do any kind of cleaning or do anything And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stick with this. Well, my plan was to be on it for six months. I learned about the dopamine and serotonin levels. And the way that um, MAT treatment, so again, I'm just going to, MAT treatment is medicated assisted treatment. Um, So MAT clinics, um, you have a range from methadone, which is, you know, methadone is what I'm on. Suboxone Mm -hmm. is another choice. Vivitrol is a shot. And then Subutex is another option. So, do you um, know how, how do they know which one works for you? Are they just, um, so a lot of clinics don't do all of them. They only offer certain ones. So like the clinic that I'm at now only does methadone. Um, and then, um, Charleston center, I believe downtown does, I believe they do, or they used to do, I think Suboxone and methadone. And then they have, um, Vivitrol. I think the Charleston center also does and some doctor's office and places like MUSC will come in and do it. Vivitrol is like a shot that you get once a month, I believe. Um, Subutex, you know, is kind of the same as, as the same idea. Um, Suboxone is pretty much, um, like a Narcan. You take it and it, not maybe not like an Arcan, but you take it and it blocks it, so you can't get high. And if you try to do it, then you'll put yourself into withdrawals real bad. Okay. Um, and so it's all like a, a a blocker, pretty much. 
And so the way that methadone works is that it it replaces, it, it builds the dopamine and the serotonin. And then once you get to a, quote, therapeutic dose, you'll start, you can either stay there for the rest of your life if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. There's no harm. Um, or you can taper slowly out so that as you get your dopamine levels, serotonin levels normal, you start tapering out. You do it very, if you do it right, you do it very, 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 very slow. And your brain will pick up, oh, there's a little bit less. I need to make a few. Right, got oh, it. Oh, now there's a little bit more. I need to make a few. And so by the end of you tapering all the way out, your brain is making what it needs. So that's the idea. Um, and so... <clears throat> Um, I started going to the methadone clinic. I remember, you know, I started feeling better and they raise your dose a little bit every, every day until, you know, then you have to start putting in a request to go up if you feel like you need it. And so, um, so I went to the methadone clinic. I was doing, you know, was doing well. And unfortunately, May of 2018 ish, um, my husband, Kenny died so it was extremely unexpected. There were some questions, you know, surrounding how he died and what he died from. Um, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't any, the reasons of his, the questions surrounding his death were very serious accusation type questions. And we never really got, you know, full answers to anything because of physical evidence and all that. Um, but he was a diabetic and he was addicted and he, you know, used high rates. And, um, so when he died, um, I found him in our house. And at that point I was like three and a half months into recovery, um, at the Matt clinic. And, it obviously it hit, you know, the people that I was only three and a half months clean. So everybody that I used to get high with, again, their way of showing love is giving drugs. Right. So I've got 20 people just flooding my phone. Hey, come get these free oxys. Hey, get, I'm so sorry. Get these oxys. Mm. That's the way they show love. Um, but that's triggering AF, oh, you know? Yeah. So especially someone who's only three and a half months clean. I have like chills all over my whole body. You know, just found your husband, you know, dead. Ugh. I mean, your husband's dead. They're pulling him out in gurneys. Like, I mean, you're you're like, oh my, you know, it's so unexpected. I mean, I, I completely was blindsided by everything. So I don't, I can't really explain how I stayed sober through that. I can't, everybody Were your girls with you know. at this time? No. Okay. No, thank goodness. They were with my mom, um, having Kinsley, my oldest, her birthday was around that time. And, um, my mom was having a little party there. And then I was going to pick my husband up. We were going to like snuggle, watch TV, spend like time together and then pick her up to take her to a movie because, um, we had missed a movie a couple of days before on her birthday. Um, so we were going to go finish that. And that's when I found him. So it, you know, it was very, the, definitely the most traumatizing thing I've ever Absolutely. Obviously gone through. Yeah, of course. Um, and so, but I remember I had like all these messages coming in also that were like, you know, stay strong. Kenny was so proud of you. And they'd say like the number of weeks that I was sober, they would say that. And I'm like, I haven't talked to this, you know, person <laughs> in months and in years, you know, how the hell do they know? Yeah. Kenny had been talking to them. He, I knew he was proud, but I didn't realize how proud that yeah. he was like bragging about how sober, you know, how long I had been. 
um, in recovery. And so that was what, I mean, he's right there, you know, I'm like, how am I supposed to, you know, F up if yeah. he's right there? Right, right. Um, plus, I mean, I'm the only parent left, you know, so I die and my kids are orphans, you know, yep. I mean, that's how I was thinking. So it was really traumatic because, because it happened in the house. I had to get rid of the house. I couldn't ever go back there cause I just couldn't do that. Um, and so I, we got uprooted and we moved back in with my parents and put all my stuff in a storage unit, which has continuously been driving me crazy. I've got to go through it because I keep, if you forget one month, I owe like $500 now or they're going to get rid of all of his stuff. Yeah. And I don't have, you know, $500 to be throwing out. So I need to do something with it. But at the time I just kept everything that was his and just put it in the storage unit because I didn't, I wasn't mentally there to, you know, be able to do anything. Um, or decide where to do, what to do with it. Right. So I kept going to the uh, methadone clinic and, you know, months, 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 months go by, clean drug tests, you know, I didn't use. Um, and so I got to my year, my year sober. So the first, like, right after he died, um, is when I found out, out who Wake Up Carolina was, um, so they have every year, so August is Overdose Awareness Month, and August 31st is Overdose Awareness Day. And so every August 31st, they have an Overdose Awareness Day event, and they put a huge flat screen, and they put people who have passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, like, send, you know, an email to info at wakeupcarolina.org, and then with the picture and what you want, put on it, like, birthday and name or whatever. Um and then anywhere doing that, like right now. So um, that's a thing if you guys know anybody that you want on there. But so anybody who's died of an overdose of any kind. And so I saw that a piece of flyer at my old clinic and it was like, oh, I have to go to that. Well, they have luminary bags with their names and like candles and held hands and did a prayer. And there was Narcan there and all this harm reduction and like purple is R is overdose awareness color. Mm-hmm. And so they had purple flags for it. And they had a thing that said, I think it was like 186 lives lost in the low country mm-hmm. in 2018. And I remember thinking my husband was one of those. And so it was very heartbreaking, but also very like, you know, not healing, but it was also very like, I felt close to people there yeah. and around uh, people that not were like not alone. Right. Exactly. That I wasn't alone. Um, and so I immediately fell in love with like Wake Up Carolina and what they did. And so over the over the years after that, like two years into sobriety, three years into sobriety, I'd go to all the events and like go by and say hello. But it wasn't until um, like three and a, three years, three and a half years into my recovery where <clears throat> they had a volunteer event, and I went to it, and there was a woman sitting across from me. And she had lost her husband um, in May of the year, so, like, not even a year before. And she was just distraught, and said, I remember being there. Um, She had lost him to an overdose. And so I got up, and I talked to her for, like, 30 minutes, and I didn't realize anybody was listening. Mm -hmm. But the executive director of Wake Up Carolina, Nancy, and then a guy that used to work there, Greg, overheard it. And so they asked me to come and co-chair an all recovery adult meeting every Friday night at 6:30 and i was like of course i'm down and then nancy and i started talking more and so fast forward to september of 2021 um they offered me a job and so i started doing 10 hours um a week um doing like hiv program assistant um getting that like harm reduction off the ground and greg ended up 
they separated ways. Um, and so I took over the meeting. So now I facilitate the compass meetings. Um, and then I started with more hours and more hours and building up. So now I'm going to full-time hours. Um, yeah. And so I do pretty much a lot of the harm reduction. So I do that. We have rapid finger prick HIV testing. It takes like five, 10 minutes. And whoever does it as an incentive, they get a $10 gift gift card to CVS. And then we do Narcan trainings. We do, we give out fentanyl testing strips to like check the drugs. Mm -hmm. If you're going to, if they're going to use the drugs, at least give them something to check it with. You know, we give out condoms, um, dental dams, like all the things, um, any kind of harm reduction we can, um, we do. And so I've got so much training in the last like nine months, just a crap ton of training. Um, I got my certified peer support specialist certificate that Wake Up Carolina paid for. And Wake Up Carolina, just in a nutshell, is a recovery community organization. And why it's so special is because, like I said, our executive director, Nancy Shipman, lost her son Creighton in 2016 to an overdose. Mm-hmm. He was very young, I think, right out of, like, high school. I want to say he was, like, 19, I believe. I think I know the story, and I think you're right. Like, yeah. real, very young, yeah. And so, um, and so it, you know, he had gotten out of treatment and stuff like that. So Nancy, his mother, found that there was a huge need in the community for a lot of moms going through that. So she started a mom's group for moms who lost their children to addiction or had children in active addiction. And it blew up. All of a sudden, the dads wanted to start coming. And they're mm-hmm. like, no, this is a mom's only. We'll start a dad. So they started a dad's meeting. Same thing. Dads with, you know, lost kids to addiction or have kids in active addiction. That went into a siblings group virtual once a month for siblings of addicts or lost, you know, to addict to addiction. Um, that went into our young adult meetings, which is called Creighton's House. And what I think is so cool about that real quick is that a lot that that meeting is ranging from ages like 13 to 18 Mm -hmm. 13 Mm -hmm. kids 13 already know and are experiencing addiction I mean that's the (sighs) world that's the situation we're in and a lot of people around here especially Mount Pleasant like upper you know class Mm -hmm. kind of people they don't want to accept that this is a problem but this is a problem and it's killing our kids it's killing our adults our kids it's killing people at insanely high rates Mm -hmm. and it's only growing so a 13-year-old doesn't want to say, oh, no, Suzanne, I'm going to a meeting at 13, 14. So saying I'm going to Creighton's house, mm. that sounds like they're going to a friend's house, right? And they are going to a friend's house because that is the biggest, probably the biggest part of Wake Up Carolina that I love so much is that it's a safe place. It's holding the door open. Whether anybody comes or not, we're there. And you're going to know that even if nobody's there, we are there. And we're going to be there holding space, holding the door being there with snacks, drinks, you know, support, lived experience. Mm -hmm. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're just going to ask if you want advice on what I did. I'm not going to tell you to do it. I'm just going to tell you what I did. And, you know, you go from there. Um, Supporting people, you know, no judgment, no hard, you know, strict rules, none of that. Just come in and be you and let's support each other, heal together and love each other. Mm -hmm. Because the only person who can understand what an addict's going through is another addict. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. If there's people listening and they've done, you know, a lot of schooling, I respect that and I love them for it and I appreciate that they care and that they did all that studying. However, they're not going to be able to touch 
an addict like I can. Right. Because my lived experience is going to run it over. You know, you cannot learn what I know or what I've experienced in any book for any amount of years, time, knowledge. An addict can't write the book and give it to you and you be able to do it. You just can't. Right. Um, <clears throat> and I'm glad a lot of people have not had to go through it. Don't get me wrong. But so the young adult in Creighton's house, obviously Creighton is Nancy's son's name. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a really beautiful way to like, in like a tribute, you know, right. to him. Um, and so then that went into our all recovery adult meeting, which I facilitate and pretty much all recovery, a lot of like 12 step NA, AA, and I respect all of those smart recovery. I mean, you know, I respect all kinds of recovery, but a lot of them would say that me going to the methadone clinic, I'm not sober. Got it. Um, a lot, if you're on an antidepressant, you're not sober. Mm. If you smoke weed, you're not sober. If you drink, you're not sober, even if that's never been a problem for you. Right. Um, and I'm not saying anything's wrong with that or not, but what I do know, what I can say, what my lived experience shows and tells me time after time again is that 12-step and NA did nothing for me. I felt worse. I wanted to get high more than I ever did when I left those meetings. Mm-hmm. And so did Why do you think that is? Because you felt shamed or... Shamed. Like put in a box, so many rules or... Yeah, a lot of rules. Um you know, you get up, hi, my name is Amanda, and I'm a opiate addict, you know, or, you know, having right. to, like, label yourself. The rules, you know, the... And I don't... There's just a lot of things to it, and it's, like I said, you... If you're on mat like I am, they don't count you as sober. If you're on an antidepressant, you're not sober, so you're kind of shunned. Not at all. Not all of them do that, but a lot of them do. Okay. And, um, and so... I respect, like I said, all those groups. I know thousands of people that it's worked for, and then I know myself and thousands of others it doesn't. Right. I know for me, the methadone clinic is what saved my life. Matt saves lives. You can't tell me different because it saved mine. Mm -hmm. And I could bring 50 people in here right this second. I could call 50 people and and show them to you. And Matt saved their life. And they are thriving in this community out here. Yeah, that's amazing. It is. And so there's just different pathways and every pathway should be accepted and respected and loved through it. Mm -hmm. And that's what all recovery means. All recovery means any pathways. If you're on mat smoking weed, if, if, if plant-based, whatever is your way of being sober, do the damn thing. You know, if standing on your head against that wall is what keeps you sober for 20 hours of the day, I'll look upside down at you, you know, (laughs) whatever, right? I mean, I got you, right? Um, It's just support. If there was, if there wasn't such a divide with different things, then I think it would be so much better. But a lot of, um, a lot of people shun the mat, you know, the methadone, stuff like that. But the definition of like recovery is really just doing better than you were before. Yeah. You know? You definitely, I think that how, I don't know how anyone can argue with that, but I'm sure people can argue about everything. So, yeah. But one thing I've learned too, especially in the last, like I've done a lot of healing in the last year, especially at wake up Carolina has helped me with a lot of my healing. And I used to avoid difficult conversations and like arguments about things. And now I thrive in them Mm -hmm. because an uncomfortable, ignorant beginning of a conversation can lead to educating someone 
And you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know until you know. Right. I mean, you know, right? So teaching somebody and educating somebody, that's normally the biggest you know, issue that I've, I found is that people are uneducated about, they think that people do, you know, take methadone to get high, that you get high off methadone. Well, do I look high? No. Cause I dosed like four hours ago. I mean, you know, can, can people abuse it? Somebody, everybody, somebody can abuse anything, anything, you know? So if you're working the program, if you're working the clinic, if you're doing your steps, if you're going to meetings, if virtual meetings, if you're not, if you're doing whatever, self-care and whatever path that you are thriving on that's all that should matter Mm -hmm. we need to build each other up it does not matter what path somebody takes I just want to support their path because guess what if they weren't on the path they might be dead Mm -hmm. you know and so I hear a lot of people say that relapse is a part of recovery and that makes me so angry because they're lying to you Mm -hmm. relapse is not part of recovery and that probably will make a couple people upset but I'm not really I don't really care um relapse is not and should not and is not acceptable to be part of recovery relapse is a part of addiction That makes sense. When you tell somebody that relapse is part of recovery, you're giving them the excuse to go get high. You're giving them the excuse. No, relapse is not part of recovery. It's part of addiction. I mean, to me, it's so simple. So just because I think that's such a valid point, um, just as someone who hasn't walked your walk, you know, Mm -hmm. and... Is there, like, just from stories I've heard of friends, and we had a woman on the podcast who lost her son to, he was one of those kids, really amazing athlete, hurt himself in high school, got addicted to pills, ended up, I believe, it was fentanyl, but I think it was heroin. Um, And, like, I don't even know where I was going with this, but um, if that, do people, if because he had been, I think, in treatment and fallen out, do people feel like they're never going to be able to get there? I mean, do you think there's a lot of hopelessness? Or I, I'm just trying to think of, like, anybody listening that what, because of what you said, like, you've been clean now how long? Four years and five months. That is amazing. Thanks. That is really amazing. Um, I guess, like, do you have words for somebody, you know, as we kind of wrap this up, like, words for somebody that's either listening or, I said, has a loved one or, you know, works with someone that, you know, how do you approach it. I was actually with some family this week, this past week, and we were speaking of one of the family members who is an alcoholic. And it's very clear that, you know, she can't go longer than four hours without having a drink and it's in the workplace and different things. And, um, and they said, you know, she will point blank be like, I'm fine. So is it, do you have to wait for the person to get there or can you still just nudge people along? Like what, what is your advice from your personal experience? Um, so to answer, I guess, to wrap it up and kind of answer a couple of those. So one, no one is going to get clean and stay clean unless they're ready. So forcing them to do it or pushing them to do it might save them for that day or that week, but they're most likely going to fall back until you want it in your soul, until you are driven to do it for you. Um, it's not going to stick. And, Part of what I part of what Wake Up does is if people want treatment, they can call our office and give us information, and we will help them find treatment facilities, detox facilities, sober living, stuff like that. Um, 
I would say too, though, that there is a lot of hopelessness in, um, there's a lot of hopelessness in addiction. And when you get into recovery, sometimes it's hard to feel, um, anything but helpless because you've done, you've done so wrong for so long that everything isn't just going to get peachy keen. Great. A week into it, it's going to take fighting. I mean, I'm four years and five months clean and I still, like I said, I've got to figure out $500 for a storage unit. I need new tires on my car. I don't know how I'm going to do that. I'm still struggling. I'm still building. My credit was crap and I've barely got it to 600 to buy a house. Like I am spiraling in financial things, trying to catch up. However, it does get better, and the longer that you stick with it and the more that you go for it and the more that you mentally tell yourself you can do this, just getting clean makes you a warrior. I mean, that's that's just it. Like, mm-hmm. people in recovery are warriors no matter what, no matter what, um, no matter what substance. And don't I would say don't let anybody, you know, push you away from any path, whether that be mat, whether that be cannabis, whether it be um, abstinence, whether it be going to NA meetings, 12-step meetings, AA meetings, whatever you, it has to be for you and you have to feel comfortable. And there are so many virtual meetings, the um, the Hope Shot on Facebook, Recovery Revolution is another one that I co-host for. Um, Against the Odds is another great one. That's kind of where I got a lot of my inspiration from in the last year. Um, You know, find somewhere that you like and stick with it. And if you don't feel comfortable, then try another one. Mm -hmm. Just not giving up because you can't come back from a relapse if you're dead. And the way that these drugs are today, like I was talking to you before, this whole weekend, all I've done is answer my work phone because we had a spike in overdoses in the Charleston area. Mm-hmm. So I've been delivering Narcan and fentanyl testing strips all morning and through the weekend because drug dealers are not chemists and they don't care about you. You know, mm-hmm. they do not care. Your family cares. Your family loves you. And all the guilt that we carry from the things we've done in addiction makes us change our decision. We don't feel like we're worthy of love. We don't feel like somebody can forgive us. We don't feel like we deserve to be forgiven, but you do. And the person that you are is not the same person when you're using. And it might take time to regain trust and build foundations back, but you will build them. I promise you will build them. And your family loves you and the streets don't. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds cliche, but it's true. Well, no, it doesn't because it's coming from you. You know, these 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 streets don't give a, a crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way that an addict looks at if you hear a drug dealer has a stash of dope that killed five people, your addict mind is taking you straight to them because that mean they have that means they have good dope. Mm. It's the twist most twisted thing. But Carrying Narcan is why that's why I always carry Narcan and just trying to get involved in some kind of um, recovery community like wake up um, wherever you're at, you know, finding something that you enjoy and giving yourself grace is the biggest thing, because if you don't give yourself grace, you're going to spiral and you're going to drown and giving yourself that's just probably the, I guess that's probably the biggest thing I would say is forgive yourself and and give yourself grace because the person that you were when you were using and making those decisions is not the person that you are sober. That's not you. 
you know, your chemicals are messed up. You deserve to be given. You deserve to give yourself grace and everybody else eventually will give you the grace as well Mm -hmm. because you deserve it and you're worthy and you're loved and supported. And I see you, we see you, you know, reach out for help if you need it. Um, Yeah. Find a good supportive family and just recovery family Mm -hmm. um, even as well as regular family and friends. And you have to change people, places, and things. You can't change one. You have to change all three. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I'm sure everything's like a trigger. It is. It is. And learning how to deal with those is a big thing as well. Um, But giving yourself the grace, I think, is probably what's been my hardest thing is forgiving myself and giving myself grace of what I did wrong. Um, So I think that's probably my biggest. That's awesome. Advice. Will you tell our listeners where they can find you on Instagram and Wake Up Carolina? So Instagram, um, it is Sober Mama. So S O B E R M O M M A one eight, um, and then Wake Up Carolina. The website is just www.wakeupcarolina.org. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was an amazing story, and you uh, you tell it really beautifully. Like you should write a book. <laughs> and you're so well-spoken and I just really, like you said, you've got iron steel balls, whatever. It takes a lot <laughs> to come on here and do that. So thank you so much, Amanda. Um, you guys, please share this with people, even people that maybe have no experience with this. Like I said at the beginning, like as we share our stories, we let go of shame. And I think this is a, just a beautiful testimony, just barely knowing you and barely knowing your daughter, just seeing the light in her eyes, like, she's got a second chance at life just like you do and so you're doing you did a good job mama um rate us review us share us and we'll see you guys soon 